Turn to Galatians chapter 3 this morning. Galatians chapter 3, we're continuing on in this series in Galatians, No Other Gospel, and just looking really at what is the gospel and what does that mean for our lives, and how do we need to be responding to it as we follow Christ. And um, today we're going to do that in chapter 3, verses 1 through 14, uh, as Paul kind of just presses in a little bit more on his, his explanation and argument for gos- the gospel by faith alone. And we're going to look at the Spirit, the curse, and the cross today as he lays out these pieces and how they connect together. Um, so this, this past Christmas, uh, we were at my mom's house, and she had prepared a game for all of the grandkids to play together. And uh, she had bought a bunch of like little toys and candy and prizes, and she even had some cash she threw in there. And she wrapped it all up in this big ball of saran wrap. Have you seen this game before, right? It's just all, like, all in there together. And then they're all sitting in a circle, and they're passing the ball around. And, and the point of the game was you were trying to unwrap the ball as much as you could and before the next kid rolled doubles with the dice, right? And then it would go to them. And whatever, whatever bounty you got out of the ball on your turn, you got to keep it. So they start playing the game. It's going around. And it's our, most of the, the grandkids on my mom's side are all girls. We got two little boys, but the rest of them were all girls. And, of course, one of my nephews ended up getting the, the coveted bottle of nail polish that fell out of the saran wrap. And um, so they, they keep playing the game that's going around, and then that game was finally over, and then we finally got to the real game, which is trading all the stuff, right, to get what you really want. And, um, and so he offers up his nail polish, and the girls start bidding on it, right? They're like, I'll give you my candy, and they're like, I'll give you my dollar, and I was like, I'll give you my five dollars, and it's just kind of like escalating really quick here, and he's just kind of sitting back, just letting the bids rise. And um, pretty soon the, the parents kind of they're like, whoa, whoa, whoa. You could buy five nail polishes for that. So let's just like pull that back a moment. And they kind of, they kind of you know, stepped in before the, the deal went sideways and the trade got really unfair. But, but he was not concerned at all, right? He was like, he was going to get the best deal uh, out of this regardless. And so he was just letting it go. Well, in this passage today, Paul is going to talk to us about a trade that is an extremely unfair trade. But the great part about it is we're the ones who benefit. And even better than that, God's okay with it. And what we're going to see today is, is Paul presses in here to explain this to us, is that faith trades the curse of my sin for the grace of Christ's Spirit. That we're offered this opportunity to trade the curse of the sin of our lives and receive the full grace of the Holy Spirit into our hearts. And so Paul's going to lay this out for us. So let's start in verse 1, and you can follow along with me. It says, O foolish Galatians, who, bewitched, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham and the Scripture Foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith 
are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. First point that we see here from Paul is this. The Spirit comes through faith. The Spirit comes through faith. Now, he starts off a little, a little strong. He's like, oh, foolish Galatians, right? Um, and the, the word foolish there in the Greek, it's pretty, it's pretty strong language, right? He's coming at them pretty hard. But what's in, is interesting is he's just previously called these same people he's writing to, he's called them brothers. Later on, he's going to call them his children. And so this is not the enemy he's talking to here. He's talking to his family, his family of faith. But he's showing us that sometimes, even in the family of faith, there is a need for some tough love. There's a need for us to sometimes speak truth to one another in times of foolishness and struggle. And it's not always nice. It's not always, you know, doesn't feel warm and fuzzy. But Paul's demonstrating for us here when he says, he says, Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Now, that word bewitch is an interesting choice here. And he's, he's asking a question, first of all. He's saying, who's done this? But he knows who the false teachers are. Right? He, we've already established that. He knows who these guys were that came in and were teaching them and, and uh, the false gospel and these kind of things. And the word who in this question is not plural, it's singular. And then when you take that singular who and you pair it with the word bewitch, bewitch means to deceive by means of like almost like casting a spell over someone. He's pointing here to a spiritual enemy, not a physical enemy. You see, Paul understands that this is not just some secondary theological difference of opinion that they're talking about. This is an all-out spiritual attack from Satan himself on the truth of the gospel. That's why he's coming hard at them. He must confront and extinguish this before it tanks their faith. And he goes on, he says, It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Now, many people can get confused by that statement because, if, again, if we do our history work on Galatians, I'll kind of catch you up if you've missed the past weeks. He's writing here to the, the Christians in the church, churches in Galatia who were primarily Gentiles. So there is no logical reason that they would have been in Jerusalem during the Holy Feast and physically see Jesus crucified. He's not saying that. He's using this phrase more in a metaphorical sense, that you saw Christ crucified. Your eyes were opened to the truth of who Christ was and how he died for your sins as I preached the gospel to you when I was there and planted your church. And he's taking them back to remind them, like, hey, I preached the gospel, you saw it, you heard it, you believed it, you were saved by your faith. He's reminding them of this process that they went through. And just as he talked about in the previous chapter we did last week, he's reminding them, like, hey, you are a new creation now in Christ. Right? You saw it, you heard it, you know the truth, and this is where you're at. He says, if that's true, he says, then let me ask you this. And it almost implies like he's going to ask them a question. And then, as any good pastor, he goes on to ask them four questions. And he, he builds these questions on top of each other. And he says, I got a few questions for you. And they're, they're really rhetorical questions, right? Like, he, they already know the answers. He knows the answers. But he's building a logic train here for them to explain to them what's going on. He says, first of all, did you receive the Spirit by works or with faith. Now, even in that question, Paul's already implying that they did receive the Spirit. Right? He didn't ask them, did you receive it? He says, when you received it. 
How did you receive it? That's the question. So he's talking here to what he believes are people who are believers, who have faith in Christ, who have received the Holy Spirit. He's like, did you get it through faith or works? You got it, but you didn't earn it. That's what he's saying. You received it as a gift through faith. He goes on, he says, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? In other words, you couldn't do anything to save yourself in the first place, so now that you're saved by the Spirit and by faith, now you're going to do works to make yourself better? To earn your sanctification? To, to grow in holiness? Is that how that's going to work? No. It's like only Jesus can do that for you. He's the one who saved you from your sin. He's the only one who can keep you growing in holiness and away from your sin. Third question, he says, did you suffer in vain? Referring to the persecution that they probably suffered from those around them when they put their faith in Jesus Christ, just like Paul suffered in those same cities. He's like, you put your faith, you were so willing to put your faith in Christ. You had such great faith and belief and hope in Jesus that you were willing to go through suffering to secure this relationship, to secure the salvation and faith. He's like, if you did that, and if you could have gotten the Holy Spirit, if you could have gotten all this through works, then what was the point of that? Why would you put yourself through all that suffering if you could be done through works and not faith? And then lastly, he says, does he who supplies the Spirit, he there is God, does he who supplies the Spirit and who works miracles among you, does he do it by works or by faith? In other words, he's like, look at the past. Look at how God has worked in your life thus far. Was it through your works, or was it through faith in his works? If that's the way he's worked up to now, why would he change? Now, again, the the logic here that Paul's putting together is is a little nuanced and complicated, so let me try to bring this into maybe like a modern analogy for you, right? Um, You know, let's say that you came up to me and you say, hey, Mike, you know, I've been I've been really needing to lose some weight, and so I started this diet. It's been going really good. I've been on my strict diet. I've been losing all this weight. It's coming off. I'm, I'm getting closer to my goal. But now that, I'm, now that I'm doing better, I think the best way to keep losing weight is just start loading up on Reese's eggs. Like, that seems like the next logical step. Now that the diet has gotten me to this point, I think if I switch it up and I go with just chocolate and sugar, then I'll get across the goal. No, like that doesn't make any sense. Like, I mean, it sounds good, but I was like, that's, that's not going to play, right? We all know that. It's, it doesn't make any logical sense. Or you've know, got this new couple, and they, and they really want to get their first house, and they're saving up all their money, and they've got to get that down payment, and they're working hard to get there, and they're really strict and, and, and tight with their finances, and they're being really responsible, and they finally buy their first house. Like, great, now that we got the house, probably the best way to keep the house is not make payments and start spending our money on traveling and clothes and food and everything else we want to do. How's that going to go? No. It doesn't work that way. You know, my, you know, when we first got together in our relationship, we were really connecting and we were talking a lot, we were communicating, we were dating, we were spending all this time together, and then we got married. But now that we're married, we don't need that stuff anymore. We can just put all of our time into kids and careers and other stuff, and I'm sure it'll, all be, it'll be a good marriage, Right? See, it's all the same argument. 
And Paul's saying, that's what I'm talking about with faith. That's what I'm talking about with salvation. You got here by faith in God doing the work in you. And the only way you're going to keep going is to keep faith in God who is doing the work in you. Not for you to do it yourself. From start to finish, communion with God comes through faith, not works. From the very beginning all the way to the end. It's always been this way. And Paul's like, hey, let me show you that it's always been this way. And then he's going to take them to Hebrew school, right? In the next couple of verses, he's going to quote so much Old Testament scripture, it's going to make our heads spin. But he's trying to show them, like, hey, let me go all the way back to the beginning and show you that it's always been by faith. He says, just as Abraham, all right, that's the beginning, that he was the start of the, the Jewish nation. He was the very beginning of all of it when God called him to start this new thing. He says, just as Abraham, the father of Israel, believed God. I want to pause there for just a moment. This is kind of a, a tangent, but it's important. Notice it says that Abraham believed God. Not that he believed in God. There's a difference. So there's so many people today that, that they believe in God. In other words, they believe that God exists. But they don't believe God. They don't believe God's word is true. They don't believe that God's promises will come to pass. They don't believe that God actually can and will save them if they will put their faith in him. Abraham believed God's promises. He believed God's word. He believed that God would do what he said he would do. That's faith. So it says that he believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now that's actually a quote there from Genesis chapter 15 verse 6. Where Abraham here in this, in this chapter, he is believing God's promise to give him and his wife a son after they've been barren their whole lives. And God said, I'm going to give you a son. And Abraham believed him that he would give him a son and make him into a great nation. And here's why that's significant. Because that means that Abraham believed before he obeyed. This is at the beginning of the relationship. This is before God brought circumcision to the Jews to show that they were his people. It's before he gave them the law. It's before he ever asked Abraham to sacrifice his son. Like, before he asked Abraham to do anything or follow any laws, or first he just said, here's my promise. Will you believe? And Abraham believed God. It started with faith. Faith, faith not works. And as a result... It says that he was justified. We talked about justification last week, right? That he was counted as righteous before God despite his sin because he believed in God to save him. In other words, Paul's saying, listen, you got these guys come here saying that you got to follow the Jewish ways. Well, that's fine because even with the Jews, it's always been by faith. He goes on, he says, it is those of faith who are sons of Abraham. Now, this is kind of a jab here at them, right? Because probably what happened was these false teachers probably would have come in and said, okay, great, you put your faith in Jesus, but, you know, Jesus is part of the Jewish people, and so if you really want to follow God, you have to become not just followers of Jesus, but you have to become sons of Abraham. That's the phrase that they would use. And this was 
common all through the Old Testament, all through that time period, that like Gentiles, people outside the Jewish faith, they could become part of the Jewish faith, but they had to convert by becoming sons of Abraham, which meant they had to be circumcised, they had to start following the Jewish laws and do all the stuff, the holy feast and all They could become sons of Abraham through doing the work, right? Paul's saying it's not the work that makes you sons of Abraham. He's flipping it on them. He says it's those of faith who are sons of Abraham. It's not by the works. It's not by law. It's not by circumcision. It's not by even ethnic lines. It's not because you were born to a Jewish family. It's because you have faith like Abraham had faith. That's what makes you part of God's family. That's what makes you a son of Abraham and ultimately a son of God. You know, we saw this really well illustrated last summer. We went through the, uh, the chapter of Hebrews 11. We looked at every one of those Old Testament examples of faith. All of them were saved, not by what they did, not by their works, not by the law. They were saved by their faith. And Abraham here is the prime example of that. Paul goes on, he says, This was all according to God foreseen beforehand how he was going to do this. And saying it to Abraham. So he points that, hey, God's plan was always this. And he told Abraham about it before anything even happened. And then he quotes Genesis 12, 3, when he says, In you shall all the nations be blessed. In fact, I think this one right here is even more remarkable than the last one. Because this statement from Genesis chapter 12 is the first time that God ever spoke to Abraham. This was the introduction Right, like God calls him and introduces himself like, hey, I'm God. I want you to follow me. Go to the promised land. If you do it, I will save all of the nations through your family. So before Abraham ever took one step to follow God, he believed God. And it was counted to him as righteousness. God called him and he believed and it started the family faith. Paul goes on. He says, so then, that's all true. If Abraham started with faith, so then those who are of faith, doesn't matter if you're Jew, Gentile, none of that. If everyone who is of faith, he says, are blessed along with Abraham. In other words, blessed in the same way that Abraham was blessed. And how was he blessed? He was counted as righteous. He was justified before God because he believed. He said, that's all it takes. If you have faith, you have the same blessing that Abraham had. And then I love this part. He says, blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Now, that, that might be something we just kind of glance over, but for the Jewish people, that would have been like, oh, well, not the man of God, not the man of the covenant, not the man of the law, not the man of Israel. No, no, the prime characteristic that Paul uses to describe Abraham's life is he was the man of faith. That's what's first. Because justification before God and being filled with the Spirit always has and always will come through faith. You know, in our society in our culture today, there's, maybe you've heard this term being thrown around about um, taking a master class, 
Have you heard of a master class before, right? Like people are giving you to take it, whatever. The idea of this is that you get to take a lesson or a series of lessons from an expert in whatever field it is. And the idea is if I, if I can learn from the expert, right? If I, if I can learn the techniques and the methods and the approach, if I, can, if I can do it the way they do it, then I can be as good as they are, or at least better than I am now, right? And so I'm going to take this master class to learn from them. And so the idea is, um, like, learn cooking from Gordon Ramsay, right? Or, or learn writing from Stephen King or shooting from Steph Curry or, like, whatever the thing is that you're interested in. Like, you can find a, a class on that. These are all ones I found online, by the way. And so, like, you can take a master class with these people to, like, become them. But you know what? I haven't seen another... Stephen King or Steph Curry just kind of popping up all over the place. Because 99% of people who take these classes, they still don't ever get to that level. And the reason they don't get to that level is because the methods, the techniques, the approaches, all the stuff, it's not enough. They can check all the boxes, and it's not enough because they don't have what these guys had before all of that. They don't have the heart. They don't have the passion. They don't have the talent. They don't have the giftedness. They don't have what came first that allowed them to then put these methods together to get to where they are now. That's what Paul's trying to tell them here about faith. The law, following God, doing all the stuff the Bible says, that's all great. And listen, if you've been at Harvest for any length of time, you know we preach every single word in this Bible. God's word is powerful and strong, and he calls us to follow every part of it. But it doesn't start there. If we try to do the methods and the work and the approach and the checklist first, it's going to bomb. It's got to start with faith, like Abraham's faith. And then as God works in us through his Holy Spirit and through faith, then all the pieces start to fall together, and we can do what God's called us to do. Faith, not works, is what we need to follow him. And so I follow Abraham's faith, not works, to be filled with the Spirit. Follow faith, not works, to be filled with the Spirit. So that's Paul's first point. Second thing he comes to here, look at verse 10. He goes on, he says, For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith, rather the one who does them shall live by them. So point number one was if the spirit comes through faith, number two, the curse comes through works. He starts off, he says, for all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. That's his thesis, right? That's that's his point here. And then he backs that up with another verse from the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 27, 26. And he says, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. That's what God had said to his people. And based on this Old Testament warning to the Jews, they thought that that was talking about the Gentiles, right? Those people who were outside of the law, they didn't have the law, they didn't know the law, they didn't follow the law. And so because they did not follow the law, they would be cursed. 
That's the way they understood this verse. But again, Paul's going to flip it on them. He says, no, no, everyone who is under the law. Every, that includes all of us. Everyone who's under the law, they are all cursed because no one can abide by it perfectly. No one can keep it all the time. And so Paul's turning this back. He's like, no, this is a mirror for you. You're cursed. He says, furthermore, no one is justified before God by the law. And then he quotes another verse from Habakkuk 2.4. He says, the righteous shall live by faith. The Jews thought the righteous live by the law. He says, no, no, no. In your own scriptures, God told you the righteous live by faith. Justification comes through faith in Jesus because he's the only one who has ever perfectly kept the law. He's the only one not deserving of the curse for sin. And so he is our only hope. He is the only one who deserves our faith. And then Paul punctuates all of this with this statement. He says, the law is not of faith. Now, he's drawing a a very stark contrast here between faith and law. But let me be clear this morning, because I think this can be a confusing point for a lot of people today, especially in, in the New Testament church. He is not saying, he is not, say not, he is not saying that God's law and faith are contradictory. Because God himself never changes. Nor does he contradict himself, nor does he contradict his word. He cannot. It is outside of his character. Plus, when Jesus came to earth, he said he didn't come to abolish the law. He came to fulfill the law. So Paul, when he's drawing this contrast, he's not saying that they are contradictory. He is saying that God's law and faith are incompatible, at least when it comes to justification. That you can't be justified by both, because they're opposites. They don't go together in that sense. One brings death through the curse. One brings life through the Spirit. It's got to be one or the other, he says. And then he quotes again another verse, Leviticus 18.5. He says, and the one who does them, them being the works of the law, the one who does them, he says, shall live by them. Or, if you don't do them perfectly, shall die by them. And so, what Paul has just done is he's drawn up two paths. Right? Over here, we have the path of Sin, of works, of the curse. That you can choose to try to prove yourself and earn your place with God by doing the works perfectly. Paul says, but that ultimately will lead to death through the curse of sin because you can't do it. That's path one. Path two, he says, is path of faith. Where I understand that I can't keep the works of the law, and so I put my faith in Jesus and in his finished work on the cross by, on my behalf to fulfill the law for me. And by putting my faith in Jesus, I receive eternal life through the Spirit of God. 
two paths. We have to choose one or the other because he says they're incompatible. You can't walk on both. It's a choice between life and death. Between freedom and curse. Between faith and works. There is a, there's a story in Greek mythology about a, uh, a god, small g, god named Sisyphus. And in the story, it goes like this. The, it says the, he was the founder and he was the, the king of, of Corinth, um, but he was known for his cunning and for his deceit, specifically against the other gods. Like he was always like trying to get one over on the other gods in the pantheon and, and like trying to one-up them. And so finally, Zeus got so fed up with him, he's kind of the head of the whole thing, he's like, I'm, I'm going to banish you for, to the underworld for eternal punishment. And here's what I want to share. This was the punishment that he was given. That he had to push this giant boulder up a hill. And once he would push it all the way up the hill, he would get to the top, but there was nowhere where for it to rest. And so it would roll back down to the bottom, and he would have to go back down to the bottom, and he would have to push it up again, and again, and again, forever. And, and what's going on here is every time he would reach the top, he would think, man, I finally got there, I, I, I accomplished it, I succeeded, I, I, I hit the goal, I hit the mark. He would be crushed by the weight of the boulder coming back down to show the failure of his works. And this punishment was to show him, to, to, to give him this stark reality that no matter what he did, he would never get there. To live with the reality that he would never be free from the curse of his misdeeds. When we try to earn our place with God, it's like we're trying to push the immense boulder of our own self-righteousness up the hill. Only to get to the top, think we've made it, and for it to come and crush everything that we just did and reveal that none of it achieved anything. And then we go back down to the bottom, crashing down in failure only to see that the path of works is just this continual curse that we can never, ever achieve. Praise God that he made another path. A way for us that gets out of the curse and into the Spirit of God. He didn't leave us in that eternal punishment. I live by faith, not by works, to remove God's curse. I deserve it. We deserve the curse of sin. But God gave us another path through faith to be saved from that. So the Spirit comes through faith, the curse comes through works, and then one last thing here, look at verse 13. 
It says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Point number three, Jesus took our curse and fills us with his spirit. He took our curse upon himself and he fills us with his spirit. Verse 13 starts off, it says, Christ redeemed us. The word redeemed, there's a financial term. It means to buy back, to buy out of debt, basically, right? And so Jesus here, he bought back our freedom from sin. He, brought, he bought back the death that we deserved, and he paid for it himself. He bought back the curse of our sins so that we could be free of it. He redeemed us, it says, by becoming, this is how he did it, by becoming a curse for us. And then again, he quotes another verse here, Deuteronomy 21, 23. Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Now, let me explain that phrase, because if you, we, we don't necessarily have a whole lot of understanding of this, in, since we don't come from the, the Jewish background. The Jewish law in that day had certain things that required the death penalty, basically. They required execution, but they were not allowed to use crucifixion as a means of execution. It was too brutal. It was too heinous. That was, they didn't do that. That was only a Roman thing, right? Romans did crucifixion. Jews did not. But if someone did violate the Jewish law in such a way that brought on execution, they would do whatever the law required in terms of execution. And then after they were dead, they would take the body and they would hang it on a pole, like on a spike, or on a tree. And they were instructed to do this, and that body was to serve as a warning to everyone who passed by and saw that this person was cursed because of their sin before God, and they were experiencing the wrath of God as a result. So the hanging of them on the tree is not what cursed them, right? It wasn't the hanging that brought on the curse. It was the evidence, it was the, the testimony that they had already had been cursed because of their rebellion and their sin and their refusal to repent. And so when Christ was hung on a cross, this became a major sticking point for the Jews to believe that he was the Messiah. They're like, you say he's the Messiah, you say that he's the chosen one, that he's the holy one of God, God in the flesh come to be with us to bring peace and justice and mercy. And How is that possible if he's cursed? It doesn't add up. Paul said, exactly. <laughs> exactly. He wasn't cursed for his sin. He was cursed for your sin. He took your curse upon himself to pay for what you couldn't pay for, to be the substitute. In theology, we call this penal substitutionary atonement. Penal meaning paid the price. Substitutionary means on behalf of someone else, atonement to cover their sins. That Jesus paid the price of our curse on our behalf to cover our sins. That's the gospel. 
that Jesus came in the flesh to do this for us so that we could be redeemed, so that we could be freed from the curse of sin. And in place of the curse, those who put their faith in Jesus, he gives us his righteousness and his Holy Spirit to live in us. Paul goes on to explain, he says, so that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles. Again, what was Abraham's blessing? It was that he was counted as righteous through faith. And when Christ died on the cross for our sins, for our curse, he opened up the door for all of us to experience the blessing of Abraham through faith. That we can all be counted as righteous if we will put our faith in Christ as well. And, he says, so that, part two, two for one deal here, you get his righteousness and that you might receive the promised spirit. That the Holy Spirit of God will come and live in us and guide us and lead us and empower us to follow God. You see, the Holy Spirit is both the proof and the power of our salvation. It both conveys and continues Christ's righteousness in us. And just to make sure that we're completely clear, once again, Paul tags this on the end. Just so we don't forget, it's all through Faith is the only path that will get you there. Faith is the only bridge from death to life. From guilty to innocent. From the curse to the spirit. Faith is the only option. And my faith in Jesus removes the curse of my sin and fills me with the gift of His Holy Spirit. Or as I said at the beginning, faith trades the curse of my sin for the grace, the free gift that I do not deserve, the grace of the Holy Spirit, Christ's Spirit in me. I want you to ponder that for just a moment as we close. Listen, what an amazing deal. It actually sounds too good to be true, right? Like my dad always told me, if it sounds too good to be true, it probably is. And 99.9% of the time, that is for real. But not this one. Not this one. This is precisely the promise of the gospel that I can be pardoned from the curse of my sin and have eternal life through the power of the Holy Spirit, but it must start and continue in faith. It's all about faith in Christ. Let's stand and pray and respond to the Lord this morning.